Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Hey, good morning, Sean. How are you? Um, it's I haven't seen you in a few days, and man, I'm already I'm already missing your uh, your cute little face and your. Uh, <laughs> your svelte little athletic body and your cute little attitude. But welcome everybody to uh, the latest edition of Off Track, our Moto America podcast. We just finished our season with a bang at Barbara Motorsports Park. I don't know about you, Sean, but it kind of feels good to get a little bit of a break here. Yeah, it does. Hey, Paul. Um, Yeah, it's funny, you know, I mean, that man, we were gone for like, over a week from the start of Barber until we got through the, the bank, the night of champions, it was kind of incredible to uh, get home and realize, ah, it's been a while. And, you know, and the other thing is, of course, you know, the season goes fast, but it, of course it also, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rounds, a lot of races, man, we do so many reports, so many press releases that there's a lot to it. Of course, I know the teams feel that way too. So it's kind of weird how it's also, it's long and it's also kind of short. Hard to believe it's over with, but I'm I'm glad to talk to you again. Yeah, it is kind of weird because some days it seemed like, oh man, that season was long. And then other days I'm just like, wow, it seemed like it just started. So it's just one of those things. I mean, that last one for some reason felt really busy um, for us. Yeah. And then like you said, uh, you know, I got in there on the Wednesday and then we didn't end up leaving there until Tuesday morning because we had the, the night of champions on Monday. So I think it just... I don't know. It sometimes it's just an extra day or two just makes the sit the trip seem twice as long, you know. But uh, man, it was it was really cool, and I thought it was a great way to end the year. And the the night of champions went really well, and we can talk about that later. But yeah, I'm I'm really pleased. Um, and to be honest, you know, I'm I'm ready for a little bit of a break and slow things down a little bit for a while. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, it's funny. I, I had a bit of an observation. You know, I have, I have this suitcase, like our bag, like I guess everybody does that, you know, we kind of use during the season and, you know, we keep, I'm sure stuff in, and I'm sure you're the same way things that you just kind of keep in there so that you'll have it next for the next round. Well, today I was kind of going through that bag. And of course I found my, my hang tag for the parking and my, uh, hard card. And I, I bet you, you're like me when you pull it out of there, you're like, well, I'm done with this for the season, but because of those hard cards and for people that don't know, it's literally like a credit card attached to a really cool lanyard around your wrist. And it's, it's not like around your neck. Um, and it's not like, uh, something that you'd want to throw away. And I tend to keep this stuff anyway. Paul, I bet you're like me. You probably look at that and you're like, oh, I got to hang it somewhere so that I can keep track of it. And when I'm on my uh, rocking chair on the porch years later, you know, years from now, I'll look back at it and go look at all those rounds that we did. Are you like that with your hard card and pass as well? Yeah, I actually ha- I have so many of them. I have. Um, well, I have some I have media passes that date back to like, you know, obviously pre moto America days, but pre like any kind of hard card days. Like I remember we used to have to we'd have to send in applications to each track to um to get media credentialed for that that particular event. And I have a lot of those. I think I have I have like Daytona, like going back to like nineteen eighty six and stuff. So wow. I've I've got a ton of them and I've also, you know, with the as far as the hard cards and the lanyards, which are which are actually kind of nice. I have those hanging around something in my office. I just throw it on there every year, but I've got supercross ones. I've got MotoGP passes and world Superbike passes. So there's, there's a big collection there, but it's kind of cool. They're, they're nice to keep. 
They are back when, when your dad used to race in Europe in GP, what, what was it like back then? Did they have hard cards for you guys? Did you wear wristbands? I mean, how did it, how did it work for you guys going from the, to the different rounds back then? That's funny. Cause I don't think I ever had anything. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it was just so different. I mean, we were, we were like in the paddock area and I honestly, that's weird. I, I've never thought about that before, but I never had any kind of credentials or anything on me for the entire time that we were there. I mean, I just run around like a kid and ride my bicycle and do whatever I wanted. And that was all that we did. You know, it was, it was like no big deal. It was, it's weird now, especially with MotoGP. I mean, they scan you when you go in, they scan you when they go out. And, but yeah, it, it wasn't like that because I just, I have no recollection of ever having any kind of path. It's funny. I mean, I see some of those old sh- photos of, of, Kenny Roberts, you know, with, with Kenny Jr. He's running around the paddock like a feral child or something. That's probably the way you were, right? Yeah, <laughs> 100%, 100%. I mean, I just, I, I just did anything I wanted whenever, whenever I went anywhere I wanted. I mean, I was always fully aware of how a paddock worked and motorcycles and, you know, not, not endangering myself by being in the wrong spot and getting hit by a guy in the paddock riding by or something. So I just, the fact that I grew up with that, that wasn't even a thing, you know, it was just like, I, I knew what I was doing kind of a thing, but yeah, it was like, I guess I just did whatever I wanted, but it can, speaking of Kenny Roberts Jr., I have a good story about that that I don't think I've shared on here, but, um, when we, we would go to Spa Francorchamps and for the Belgian Grand Prix. And I remember little Kenny was probably five, four or five years old. Um, and they, the, the bathroom there there would be this like this little old lady, she would sit outside and she would have this like collection plate and you were supposed to put, you know, I don't know what the, the, the money was then francs or something, but I don't know, say you put a franc in there or five francs or whatever. Well, she, she would leave at night and then little Kenny would go over there with a plate and sit out front thinking he was going to collect <laughs> money. But I'll never forget that because it was just so funny. I, I have a photo of it somewhere, but I, I've, I can't ever find it, but I know it exists of him sitting there with that collection plate. <laughs> Didn't he around that time too have like a, a miniature pair of leathers to match his dad's or something that he used to wear around? No, he had those that they, they had his, they had those made when he was like a little baby. I remember pictures of him like as a little, oh. like a baby just laying in a, in a, in a bassinet type of thing, wearing those leathers. But I don't think he had them after that, but I mean, who knows he could have, but I, I never saw those, but yeah. It How was, about you guys? You got, you got to tell the story about what was it? Was it Monza about the Coke and stuff buying the Coca-Cola um, or stealing it? Well, yeah, <laughs> I think the statute of limitations, statute of limitations is up. To, you got to tell that story for that. Yeah, but it's listener. not, a, it's not a, the statute of limitations isn't up with my mom. She gets mad every time I tell that story, but. Okay. We better not then. Oh man. She had no part in it. So, I mean. But anyway, there was this Coca-Cola thing at Monza and it was like, you know, there was tons of bottles of, you know, this is the old days. I mean, we're talking about glass bottles of Coke, like, you know, the original. Um, and the, the guy would leave after, after the day. And, but he was like in this caged in thing and there were all these bottles of Coke, which, you know, Coca-Cola was a huge thing for us. And, and yeah. some of the, some of the riders would get me and they'd like slide me under the fence. Cause I could fit under the gate thing. And I would go in there and I'd take, uh, coke and hand them back out to those guys. But I guess, I mean, it's still stealing, but I, I feel bad about it, but whatever. I was a little kid. I'll just blame those riders for pushing me under there and making me go get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're bad influences. Is it true, by the way, now we're off on a tangent, but is it true that Freddie Spencer used to have like cases of Dr. Pepper flown in for him? Is, I used to hear that rumor. Is that is that really true? I couldn't tell you that. I mean, I, okay. I would think that probably Dr. Pepper wasn't something you could, I don't think you could get that in Europe at the time. I'm sure you can get anything now, but um so I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he somehow, I don't know if he'd have it flown in or if he just throws them in a suitcase or whatever, but um, I, know, I know he liked it a lot. So I'm sure he was getting it there somehow. It turned into a fish story probably, but um, okay. Well now I've got a story. So Paul, we talked about this a little bit over the weekend and I've, I've made mention before about the fact that, you know, I, I live in, in Ohio, I live in, technically it is called a village. So I call it the village. And sometimes when I say it, I know you laugh because I think we all know that I'm probably the village idiot for sure. But, <laughs> but, but, but this is an example of me being the village idiot. You know, my wife is a teacher. So a few years ago, when you go downtown into our village, each side of the uh, the street, the road has these diagonal parking spaces. So if you're going down, well, I call it going east down downtown, you park, you basically can pull right into a space. But if, if you're coming, if you're wanting to turn into a space on the opposite side of the road, the, the diagonal is in the opposite direction. So you kind of have to quasi do a U-turn, but it's not really a U-turn. Are you following me on that? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So anyway, our post office is on the left when you go downtown. So the thing to do is when you want to go into the post office parking space in front of the building, you, you, you park in this diagonal space. Well, you take a left. And you, you kind of a little bit turn back, but you don't do quite a U-turn. Well, a few years ago, my my wife actually got pulled over by the police. And the police station is like literally right, right across the, one of the side streets from where the one side of the, the mail or the post office building is. So, so they're right there. She got a ticket for an illegal U-turn. And she said, well, I wasn't taking a U-turn. And he said, well, that's a U-turn going into that diagonal space. And she said, well, it's not my fault that the village did diagonal spaces like that. I mean, it's kind of weird. It's one of those halfway things. So, you know, this is where the part of the story that you heard about picks up. The, a couple weeks ago, I was driving downtown and there are two, um, two lanes on each side going each way. So a policeman was in front of me in his, in his cruiser and he was, he was stopped at, and the light turned green and I was behind him. So there's no left turn only lane. You can either go straight or turn left. Well, he, I could tell by him waiting that he was turning left to go into that side street where to go with the police station behind. So I'm sitting there and I was a little annoyed with the fact that if I would have known he was turning left, you know, I could have gone around him on the right hand side. So typical me with my overwhelming sense of justice, I actually parked the car and I went into the police station and I asked the dispatcher, I said, who's the, who's driving? I forget what unit number it was. And they told me who it was. So I went out and I kind of motioned to the guy because he was still sitting in the parking lot. And he rolls down the window and I said, you didn't signal at that left turn. And he goes, God. well, I don't know if I did or not. So, so, you know, I totally confronted the guy and the fact that he was completely unaware of it, I, was, I started going, you got to set an example, you know? And I was, he, I, this is a small village. I get it. I'm blessed with the fact that if I was in a big city and I confronted a policeman, well, who knows what would happen? And the guy actually was pretty pretty courteous about it. And I cooled down afterwards, but it's this kind of thing that if they're going to, you know, get my wife, give my wife a ticket for taking a left turn that they consider a U-turn, then I'm going to say something about him for not signaling a left turn, which, you know, that people 
policemen give tickets for no signal lights all the time. What, which brings me to this story. The reader probably saying, why am I telling this whole story? It's, it's based on this idea of laws and rules that there are certainly gray areas on and there's interpretations and it happens all the time. And, you know, just like that, I think that policeman interpreted on my wife, uh, you know, an illegal U-turn, which technically wasn't, well, he has the authority, so he gives the ticket, which brings me to how everything went in that super sport race on Sunday. And I mean, we got to talk about it. It's the elephant in the room. And I can't tell you how many times I've made comments on social media, just straightforward. You know, it's an FIM rule. And, and I totally get it's subject to interpretation. But, you know, what people don't know is that you, Paul, and more you than, more than you than me, but Thomas Stevens came into the media center um, our race control race director and sat down and, and really talked to you for a long time about what the rule is, quoted the rule and everything. And, and I understand that it may be subject to interpretation, but we've seen, I think three times this year worldwide that this rule has kind of come into play. I think Suzuka was one example when the, um, the Yamaha team didn't win, be, you know, because of a, a red flag in their whole deal. But I wanted to talk to you about that just because, you know, what we faced and the fact that we didn't want that to happen the way it did, but it did. So, you know, talk about that, if you would, a little bit from our side. Yeah, um, it is the elephant in the room. And you're right. I mean, we do have to talk about it. It's I mean, uh, th we followed the the rule for what it was. I mean, Thomas followed the rule exactly for the way that the rule was written. Um, whether or not you agree with it or not, the bottom line is that's how he has to handle it as the race director. He has to follow the rule as to, as to how it's written in the rule book. Um, I think it's, this is my personal opinion. I think the rule needs to be changed. I think the rule works out fine if the race is restarted. Um, it gives that guy an opportunity to be gritted again. He made it back to the pits in time, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't think it worked out real well with the fact that the race was called at that point. Whether what right. No matter what the rule is, I think people have an issue, myself included, that, that you can somehow not be rewarded. Well, I guess it is rewarded. But I, to me, if you crash out of a race, it's like, the ultimate thing that you can do wrong, right? So mm -hmm. the, the fact that he crashes out of the race and still is awarded the victory is just, you know, it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem right. Even though the way that they, the rule is written, what they did was exactly right. And based on that rule, he did win the race. Still, the perception is that it's just wrong. And I have the same perception. It just doesn't seem right to me that you can crash and win the part of it that made it difficult for me is um you know is the fact that we had we had the podium we shouldn't have had the podium actually things should have just been put on hold because it's not like they it's not like they issued results that were incorrect and then reissued the results they had the results correct from the beginning but they didn't issue them right away but it, it, right. it's easy to do. You go ahead and you do the podium and you do the press conference based on just what you saw. And, and that's kind of what we did. So there, there, there's a few guilty parties and all of that, but that's the way it played out. So the, the, the hard part for me was that we had a podium ceremony and we had a press conference and, and, you know, it was, it, it was a very big deal to Richie Escalante to win that first, first, what would have been the first win of his career 
et cetera, et cetera. I know it was hard on the team because, I mean, they'd wanted it. They'd worked hard for it. And I could tell how emotional they were when they finally got that win. And then for that to be not taken away because it wasn't actually presented to them in the in the first place, at least not accurately. We we went ahead and made that presentation when 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 we shouldn't have. But it was still it was a difficult situation and I just felt bad for everybody involved. Yeah. Um you know, and and Paul, and Paul tell this part too. You personally spoke to both Richie and Bobby Fong after our podium celebration after that whole thing. And tell us what what they said, how they reacted to the whole thing. Well, Bobby was totally surprised. He's like, "What? I won? What?" I you know, he he, yeah. he couldn't comprehend it. Um right. and, and you know, Richie was really gracious. Richie's like, "Hey, I totally understand. I'm not mad. I don't I get it." You know, he was really I mean, he, he's, he's just a really nice young man. And, uh, and he's been that way since the beginning when, when he first started with Moto America, he's just been a nice, polite, polite racer. Um, and, and he was fine with it. So, um, I think there was some others that were maybe a little upset, but the bottom line is the rule was followed. If the rule needs to be changed, then it'll be, then we'll tinker with it a little bit and change it again. That's not my department. Um, but, but I, I, you know, I, I think something needs to be looked at. Maybe, maybe the fact that, you know, it, if the race can be restarted, then that rule doesn't necessarily play in. I mean, if it can't be restarted, yeah. but. Yeah. I mean, and of course we're governed by FIM and I had mentioned the fact that I think there's at least been two, uh, the two other examples, but for sure it happened in uh, Suzuka, which is so weird after an eight hour to have a situation happen like that, where. I think it was that, you know, Yamaha team that, that um, the Kawasaki team ended up winning because do you know the whole scenario of that? Do you remember how that went? I don't. Um, I don't. Okay. I know it was a bit I, of a mess, but I don't I didn't pay too much attention to it. Um, I know at the yeah, time I, I thought it was, it was extremely silly, but. Yeah, somebody crashed in oil. I, I'd have to look it up. I should have been a little more prepared than this. But basically, I think, you know, one of the teams crashed in somebody else's oil, but it reverted back to a lap before. And it meant that the Kawasaki team was leading at the time. And, you know, Yamaha kind of took the lead after that whole thing. And, you know, but and it kind of kind of wasn't wasn't fair from that perspective. And I know we kept saying for our situation, you know, thank goodness that Bobby had won on Saturday and wrapped up the the championship on saturday i mean i don't want to diminish the importance of that race on sunday because you know for for richie or anybody or even for bobby who won again it it does matter but thankfully it didn't you know have anything to do with the deciding of the championship too so that was that was kind of a good situation on our part but it's just you know it's been a lot of commentary in the you know on social media about it as there always is but i just thought it was cool that you you know, you had spoken to Richie and Richie was gracious and you had spoken to Bobby and Bobby was surprised and kind of a little reluctant about it, you know, um, didn't want to win a race that way. So the combatants or the protagonists in that race, you know, they had their own reaction and it almost seems like, you know, fans and other people, you know, because they're fans, of course, and that's short for fanatic. They, uh, you know, kind of go off the deep end on a little, on it a little bit, but you know, you gotta, you gotta play by the rules and the laws. And I guess I do in my, my little village, even though I'm the village idiot, but that's the reason that I brought that up is that every rule seems to be, you know, an interpretation at times, but, uh, you know, you gotta have them to have control or, you know, some sanity in the whole thing. And I know that's what we did. So, yeah. Um, and it, it, I got to tell you, if I confronted a police officer like that, I somehow would get a parking ticket every day for the rest of my life, no matter where I parked. 
<laughs> well, I told you I had parked, I'd parked in front of the police station. I thought he was going to come out with a baseball bat and smash my headlight in and go, you have a blown headlight, boy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I don't uh, – God, I, I really don't know why you care enough to do stuff like that, Sean, but I guess that's what separates you <laughs> from the rest. It's kind of part and parcel of who I am. I'm just got, I'm just weird like that. Yeah, I guess, I, but, I guess you just want um, stuff done right. Yeah, it's admirable, yeah. it's admirable um, but I wouldn't have taken the time to talk to the cop. Yeah, I don't know. After I got done, it's like I, I definitely think about it later on, believe me. But um, so, hey, let's talk about Superbike. Uh, wow, crazy situation, you know, to see Yamaha win that by – by uh, five points. And I mean, you know, I was gutted for Yoshimura Suzuki. I mean, it just, it seemed like it was, um, you know, you see something happening and you can't stop it almost, you know, it felt, it felt like there was something cosmic or karmic that was going on in that season. And it was starting to head that way. And they just couldn't stop it. They couldn't head it off. It seemed like, did you feel like that as well? Yeah, it's, it's, it kind of it's it it left me with a feeling of um i was really happy for cam and really happy for yamaha um but -hmm. also on the other side of it i was just sad for for tony and sad for that team because you know they all work so hard and that's 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 one thing about tony it's like he's he's such a sweetheart not necessarily on the track but off the track right that you couldn't help but feel for the guy because I mean, you know, Cameron won the first race at Road Atlanta, and that was the only day he led the championship until until Sunday afternoon at Barber. Tony led the entire championship for that entire season, and it was, um, you know, it was just a shame that 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 he had to lose it. It's just one of those things. I mean, they're both good guys, they're both good teams, and it's just one of those things where somebody has to lose, and it kind of makes you makes you a little bit sad when that happens because you don't feel like either one of them deserved to to lose that. And when you look at Tony's season, I mean, the guy just, he had an exceptionally good year and, and it just was a shame that it, that it ended that way. I kind of sensed it. I kind of felt that that was going to happen after, you know, when I, when I talked to Tony on Friday, like after the first practice, even before I think he had his big crash, um, he was already telling me that he didn't, you know, he was saying, he, he was saying all the wrong things that led me to believe he wasn't thinking all the right things. You know, he was like, Oh, I don't like the resurface. I don't like this. I don't like that. And I, it was kind of like, I don't know. I just felt like he was in the wrong frame of mind. And Cameron, I thought was mm-hmm. the complete opposite. Cameron, if you, if you look at his comments throughout the course of the whole weekend, it's like, everything's great. I love this. I love, you know, everything's perfect. It, it just, so I, there were the kind of comments that if I'm Tony and I'm feeling a little negative, I read this guy's comments and I'm like, holy crap, he actually likes it. He's doing great. You know what I mean? I think it just, I think it just got away from him. And I think, yeah, I think the thing, I think the thing that had the biggest effect on Tony in those last races, you know, even in New Jersey and and then the two races at Barber, I think the thing that had the biggest effect on him was Garrett Gerloff. I think when, yeah. when Garrett came on the way that he did in the second half of the series, Tony probably felt, and, and, and rightly so, that he wasn't racing just Cameron Bobier anymore. He was racing Cameron Bobier and a Garrett Gerloff who on any day could, could beat him, or could beat both of them, definitely beat one of them, you know? So I, yeah. I think he saw then that like, oh man, this is kind of getting stacked upon, stacked up against me. And 
you know, I, I, I just think he just, he went the wrong way with it. Um, you know, obviously he couldn't, he, he struggled with the motorcycle, but normally, I mean, if he struggles with the motorcycle, he's never struggles. He's never that far back, you know, he's just not. And I, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. I don't, you know, only he knows and, and maybe we're making more out of it than we should. And maybe he just got beat and there's nothing to it. But I just, I just felt like it wasn't, it wasn't the normal Tony that we had there in the last, you know, two rounds and three races or four races. You know, it's strange on Sunday too, because, you know, with regard to Tony having this, these problems that he seemed to have towards the end of the year, to your point, you know, we would see him, uh, if he qualified back, it didn't matter to him. He, he'd just get one of those crazy starts. He gets in a race and he'd be right up among the front group. And it didn't, it didn't really happen as much towards the end of the season. But the thing that amazed me on Sunday is he had all kinds of problems. You know, he was back quite a way. He started back quite a ways. He was back quite a ways. But wait, he ended up he ended up fourth that day. So it's like he still managed to get a pretty decent result. But right. you know, he had of course he had to get second if uh, if Cameron won it. Which you know, say what you want about team orders. You know, I know that you asked Cam uh, Garrett about it, and Garrett was really good about it. I mean, he had a pretty good poker face. You know, I think he. He clearly, a lot of these races wanted to win in, win in himself. And I know early in the year, you would talk to Tom Halverson, the team manager, and, and uh, wondered, you know, shouldn't it be team orders come into play? And, you know, they were still thinking, well, you know, Garrett still has a chance to win it as well. So it could be either guy. And it was obviously not the case in that, that final round. But Garrett did race hard. Um, I think he had the pace to win both those races in a different situation. Probably he would have won those two, but it's not like he made it super obvious that he was just going to, you know, let Cameron buy and let him do his thing. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. And I think if, you know, if you look at the lap times, especially on Saturday, I mean, Cameron was, Cameron was doing qualifying lap times, you know, to catch back up to Garrett after he got stuck for so long behind Josh Heron, who, who was doing a, an amazing job of being a teammate at that point. Cause he was, he, yeah. he, he basically threw away any, any results that he could have gotten in order to take care of Tony and ride shotgun behind him and also block guys um, from passing him that, that, you know, like he, he held Cameron up for a long time. I mean, it was obvious as soon as Cameron got by Cameron just took off and went after Garrett. But um, you know, I know Garrett wanted to win those races, but he also like he, he explained, um, we did a meet and greet on Saturday and Sunday with our VIP uh, people in the up there in the in one of the suites. And on Saturday, he was a little bit less open about it. But on Sunday, he was very open. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm part of the Yamaha family and I have been for a long time. And I'm going to do everything I need to do today to to help Cameron be champion. So he was upfront about it. And also, I mean, it's not it's not the type of thing that's going to hurt him because um, you know, and, and incidentally, he's in Europe now going to the world superbike race this weekend in Magny Corps in France. Um, you know, and he's actively pursuing a world superbike ride for next year. And I, 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 I tend to think that he's going to get one, which would be great. Right. And I think it'll be on a Yamaha team, but I don't think in any way, shape or form what he did to help Cameron, um, hurt his chances by not having two more wins or one more win or whatever it would have been. And I mean, you can look at it too, that, I mean, somebody that wants to hire somebody like that, and he'll probably will be hired into a team initially anyway as as the number two rider, because there's probably going to be somebody more established in that team. Then you would look at him as like, hey, you know what? He's a good soldier. He's a good teammate. He's extremely fast, but he'll also do what he needs to do to to help the team. So, I mean, 
it it, it probably you know it, it it definitely wouldn't have hurt uh, Garrett. I, it, and in fact, it might have actually helped his cause. Yeah, it probably did. And yeah, and like I say, he he would have been a different person or a different rider, probably you know Saturday and Sunday at Barber. And yeah, if he does go on to World Superbike. Who knows, you know, if he's got a more, more established, more experienced rider, but the rider, you know, Garrett proves to have the pace that he's had this year and, you know, he might become the, the, the leader in the overdog, but if he doesn't, you know, he can certainly help that other rider. That's the interesting thing about those, those factory teams and everything. You know, I wonder, um, you wonder what, (laughs) I don't know about what might, might've transpired within Yamaha's team, but you wonder between Cameron and Garrett, you know, they're, they're good friends. Some people call them twin sons of other mothers and uh, you know, Garrett lived with Cameron for a while. They get along really well. And I believe wholeheartedly that they do, but you kind of wonder if there was anything there. I I'm almost curious as to whether, I don't know, did, did, uh, did Cameron say, hey, I'll give you, give you the purse or something on Sunday? You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on between riders, right? I mean, there could have been a little some incentive there for, for Garrett, which I'm not saying that's what motivates Garrett. It's just, it's kind of a nice to have, I guess. Do you think any of that might've happened along the way? No, I just think it was just, I, I just think it was Garrett thinking that that was the right thing to do and, and helping his teammate. And obviously, like you said, they have a good relationship. I think he just, um, I just think he thought he was he he's going to go out there and do the right thing and 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 help uh help his teammate win the championship ch- championship so Yamaha wins it instead of Suzuki. I think that's you know those you know how those guys are with money. I don't see any of them giving any of it away. So um yeah. And I I I think you know Garrett I th- I think Garrett's going to be fine. I, I you know he's he's off to Europe like I said to just show his face at World Superbike and obviously talk to some people. And I think he's, uh, I think if somebody makes the choice of taking him over there, it's not going to be something that they regret. That kid wants to be world champion. Um, he's not, he's at this point in his career, he's not overly driven by the money part. Um, if he has to take a pay cut or whatever he has to do to get to that point where he can build on that and build a career over there, then he's willing to do that, which is, which is, which is pretty, pretty cool that, you know, he wants it so badly that he'll, he'll do whatever it takes to get there. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the, the night of champions that we had. Uh, it was a, obviously a great celebration and, and, uh, Wayne Rainey, his speech at the end underscored some things, the feeling among some of the riders in the, in the room. And it was interesting that it was all gracious, of course, when the second, the third or the second place rider would go up and have the speech. But at the same time, you could really tell that Uh, Some of those riders, particularly, I I know Hayden Gillum was, you know, probably the first one to say uh, in his speech that, you know, it's not third place isn't good enough for what for him, for his team. And he he clearly felt like he let let them down and he didn't feel a lot of, I I think, um, satisfaction or or triumph with that. And and Wayne rightfully so pointed out as a as a racer himself said, you know, it really touched me because I do the big, the best part about doing this job is going to the track and seeing the racers and to see how much these results mean to these riders. Uh, it's just, it's just great to see. And I know he was pretty touched by, um, I'm sure you were, you were too, as, as I was and everybody else in the, in the room, it was in, it's kind of an interesting, uh, feeling in that during that whole thing. Didn't you think? Yeah, I think it's, I think Wayne's, um, speech summarized everything pretty well. And I think it, it, if I was if I was a racer or a team in that room, 
I would have walked away from that feeling pretty good. Um, yeah. you know, Wayne's good like that because the thing that makes Wayne good like that is he's actually speaks from the heart. He doesn't prepare any of that stuff. And, and, and I mean, he was talking about, he, he based his speech a lot on, on guys who made their speeches just, you know, minutes before that. So it's, he, he, he does love being at the races and he does like that competition. And I think that's a big difference to turn our series now than how it used to be. And even when we first started, if you look at the, the margin of victories and stuff, there's no, there's no big margin of victories anymore. Those vic, those wins are hard to get. Um, you're beating guys by a couple of inches, tenths of a second, and they fight hard. I mean, if you look at that super sport class, those guys rode hard the entire season. Uh, you know, four or five, six of them, and then and again, the margin of victories weren't very weren't very much, and it was just you know that that championship just comes down to it's just a big big fight, and it you know so it is hard to lose those, but as Wayne pointed out, it just shows how much it actually means to these guys that they you know, they, they put it out there as much as they do and, and fight and be willing to fight as much as they do for those positions. Because I mean, it's everything. I mean, there's nothing like being a champion and, and, and there's, there's nothing like coming up just short as, of being a champion. And I'm sure it just makes those guys want it even more for the next year. PJ Jacobson's the perfect example. I could look at his face and you could tell it was just like burning him up inside that he wasn't champion. And the same with Hayden Gillum. Well, you know, if they take that into the off season and use it to, to drive themselves, you know, maybe it makes them ride their bicycle a little farther. It makes them lift more weights. It makes them go to the gym for longer, but it, it drives them because they want, they want it so bad. And, and to me, that's, that's everything with competition. It's how bad these guys want it. Yeah. And the difference between second and third, not only with margin of victory, like you said, but it's that what they say about the talent of a rider, you know, there's that little percentage extra. That's just some intangible thing within them, whether it's their, their drive or their psyche or something that really puts them over the top and makes a difference. And one of the things we, we certainly saw that with, with, with Garrett Gerloff this year, we all, we said he's going to win. And then when he did, it was like, wow, he started going on a roll and he almost seemed untouchable. And, you know, to your point earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that Cameron saw it too and was was a little bit frightened by it. And it's it's just interesting how riders will get in these modes where they, they it's, I don't know if they figure something out, but they get to a certain level and they're, they seem to be able to maintain it a little bit. I've, I've never really understood how that breakthrough happens and how it, how it continues to go like that. It's interesting part of racing though, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, it's just like anything else in life. Once you, once you, once you prove to yourself that you're able to do it, then you just expect yourself to be able to do it every time. Um, and I yeah. think that's how it works out with these guys. That's why I think that first one might be the hardest one to get. But, uh, once you do get it, I mean, you've proven to yourself that you can do it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, you know, you beat, you beat Cameron and you beat Tony and you beat Heron and you beat Skultz. You beat these guys. It's like, it, it's hard not to walk away from that uh, with a lot of confidence that you can do it again. And it kind of just snowballs from that point and, and they, they continue to do it. So yeah, it's, it's the, it's that whole thing of competitions. What it's what I like most about the sport, <clears throat> excuse me, but yeah. um, you know, it's like they, you know, there's a lot of people that, that like the technical part of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm intrigued by the technical part of the motorcycles and how cool they are and how trick they are. But, but the part I like the most is just that personal, you know, comp 
competitive spirit that these guys have and what makes them tick. And, and, you know, you get to know these guys and they're all very different, but, um, about how they go about their business. But when it comes down to it, they're, they're obviously really competitive people or they wouldn't be doing what they do. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. We uh, you had mentioned about this possibility with Garrett going to World Superbike. We don't know if Cameron's got an offer too, or what where the situation is with that. Yeah, you know, obviously there are some teams that are going to be changing. We've we've heard rumors. We've just speculated on things in both really all the classes. We've heard things within Junior Cup. We've heard it in in Supersport and and Superbike too. I guess there's going to be a lot of things that are in flux this year in terms of riders and. You know, whether riders are going to move up to Superbike when oh, spaces open up on teams, you know, whether they'll be with different teams, whether teams are going to step up and go from Super Sport to Superbike or Stock 1000. I mean, there's a, the big question about Andrew Lee, whether he's done, you know, he's certainly done all he, he can and can do in Stock 1000 and seems to be he ought to be racing a Superbike and to make that jump and you know wants to do it as well but there's a lot that we're going to find out during this off season and it's it's interesting because it's kind of racing racing is year round i guess it's like that with a lot of sports there you have to prepare in the off season for when the season starts but i'm sure there's going to be a lot of things announcements that are going to be coming out from from teams or riders or things that we'll hear and maybe we'll get to make some announcements on stuff as well. But, um, you know, it's nice to have the season over, but at the same time, it's, you know, moving on and looking forward to the, the next steps and what, what's going to transpire. I, you know, hard to believe, you know, you were, you're, you started with Moto America in the very beginning, Paul, and it's been five years for you. And I want to say to you and everybody else in Moto America, you know, I'm, I'm new to Moto America these past couple of years, but you guys have really done a great job. And I mean, it's hard to believe that it's been five years, you know, have gone by. It's, and I, I just think there's a lot, lot to come a second year with the TV. I mean, that's going to be tremendous to see as well. And I just think, you know, we're now seeing some of this movement of riders in the lower, I shouldn't say lower classes, but the other classes moving up to the premier class. So um, we're really starting to see some momentum with, with Moto America now. And, I, you know, hats off to you guys that started it all for one thing. I want to, I want to make sure I say that to you, but you must be excited for what's going to come as well, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I think one thing about our sport is, is it seems it is year to year. I mean, it's not like baseball or football. These guys don't get 10 year contracts or eight year contracts. I mean, pretty much everybody, the most you ever see is a two year deal. I, it seems right. like to me. So these guys are on one year deals. So there's always this at the end of the year, there's always like, Oh, what am I going to be doing? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? And honestly, it's like, you can kind of overthink it. Um, it it's like, you know, when they say there's going to be this new team or this team's leaving or this team's not leaving this, you know, this team's coming in. It's like, I'm to the point where like, I just, I believe it when I see it kind of a thing. Um, right. Some teams end the season a little more frustrated than other teams based on their results or based on who knows what, but it's like anything else. I mean, you know, you, you know, you saw me on Sunday night at the, at the track. I mean, I was just frazzled and I was just <laughs> over it. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm packing my shit and moving to Australia and, and, you know, you can have this job and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you, you get home and you, you know, you kick it around and you do your laundry and you get back to work and you start thinking about stuff. And, and, you know, you know, you, you start to come to more reasonable <laughs> decisions in your life. Yeah. 
And I, I think that <laughs> probably holds through with, you know, t- true to riders and teams too. They get back home and they're like, oh, you know, it wasn't so bad. You know, I kind of liked it and I can't imagine not doing it and blah, blah, blah. So you just got to let things cool down a little bit and, uh, and everybody makes their decisions and, and, you know, we get to, we get to the holidays and, and people start knowing what they're doing and we start finding out about it and we can tell our fans. And before you know it, we're, we're testing at Barber and we're racing at Coda and we're doing it all over again. So I, I tend yeah. not to, I tend not to worry too much about things when it comes to that, because a, there's nothing I can do about it. And B, it, it's kind of pointless to worry about something that doesn't actually happen the way that you fear it to happen anyway. So that's yeah. the philosophy of Paul. It cracks me up every year with some of these people like, uh, oh, I'll give you an example. You know, Vic Fasola, you, you know, he's been around forever. He was Aaron Yates's guy. Well, now he's working with Ashton Yates and it's Vic Fasola racing. And it's just funny to see these guys in different aspects. You know, Gary Medley, I still see him once in a while. Ron Barrick, you know, who used to be in charge of AMA. What was he, the race director or something? And, you know, he works with Quarterly. And a lot of these guys, you know, they move around, but you still see a lot of them that are just there wearing a different shirt but they're the same guy and um it's it's obviously a little bit like that with riders too sometimes um and i it underscores what you said about the technology and the motorcycles are terrific i i'm a huge fan of that as well but it's it's the it's the faces beneath the helmets or you know the guys underneath the team shirts and you know those guys might wear different colors or wear different helmets or be on different bikes but it comes down to you know these guys that have been around and are are our sport it's it's great to see them every year as well as new people that that come in that we we don't know and get to know you know along the way so um it it's it's just terrific i mean it was a it was a great year there's no doubt about it a crazy crazy way that it ended and just the fact that None of our none of our classes had been decided, uh, you know, a few rounds ahead of time. It was it was down to the last couple of rounds, and it's just so cool about about our sport that things can be that much in in flux, and you never know how it's going to go until until the end. So um, it's definitely fun. Yeah, and you know, it's 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 somewhat of an addiction, I think racing is yeah i mean if you think about it and you you know i've been doing it obviously since well since i was a baby um it's so it's it's all i really know as far as as far as that as as far as my professional life goes it's it i can't even remember not you know being involved in motorcycle racing with my job at cycle news and now this job um but it's like i can't imagine it's hard for me to imagine not doing it you know and I think that's a lot, you know, like Vic Fasola, the perfect example, Ron Barrick, these guys that are, they just, they come back because, you know, it's their life and, and they love it. And, and like I said, I think there's a bit of an addiction there and yeah. the, the, what fuels that is, is having some success. I mean, I think it's hard if you come back all the time and you don't have any success, but you know what? I mean, these guys have all tasted it, so they know what it's like. And everybody firmly believes that that their guy is capable of bringing that success to them again, and they get to taste it again. It's like it's like that taste of champagne. I mean, it it doesn't get any better than 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 drinking champagne after you've won a race like that for those guys, and 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 it keeps you coming back. I mean, they want more. 
Yeah, it, I'm not sh- as far as taste of champagne. That's one thing, but the spray of champagne upon Brian J. Nelson's camera lens is not always that appreciated. He uh, he got blasted pretty good in the podium celebration. It was mostly because the rider didn't couldn't see because he had champagne in his his eyes. But it kind of cracks me up. It's like you know that's got to get kind of trying for Brian J. After a while, because he's got to go back out there on the track and. Shoot some more stuff, you know. So, well, yeah, never ending I job mean, for him. Because when when that sham came, that champagne comes out, I kind of head for the hills a little bit. Whereas Brian's kind of yeah. he's got to be a little bit more committed to the to the to the shot than I have to be. Um, I try to get my stuff before the champagne, and then I'm out of there because you know it, it's bad enough. I mean, it's bad enough being on your clothes and being sticky and and whatever for the rest of the day, but it's really bad like if on your equipment. So. Yeah, I, I can. Right. Brian, they do a really good job of of leaving Brian out of it. But like you said, that time it was just um, the guy, the guilty party, couldn't actually see what he was doing, so he was just spraying at a moving, <laughs> a moving object. <laughs> that was classic. Um, hey, we did pretty well. Uh, let's see. You know, we don't do these just the two of us very often, but uh, it doesn't take. You know, we talk about a couple subjects and before we know it, the podcast is done. So, you know, that 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 was fun. We uh, will certainly have some time next week. Yeah, I think you and I could sit and talk for hours and hours and hours about this stuff. And uh, and it, it makes it fun. And I mean, it, you know, and we both have a passion for it, obviously. I don't, you know, this isn't a, this isn't an industry that you would work in if you didn't have the passion for it. And uh, I like to see like, you know, Doug, who came on with us this year and does all of our videos and helps with social media. I mean, I, it's fun for me to see um, how far he's progressed in his knowledge of the sport. I mean, this was a guy that didn't know anything about what we did and he's picked it up and he likes it and he likes the people involved and and he's done such a good job. And and who knows, you know, we might have a guy there that's uh, that, that's, that gets addicted to this stuff and, and sticks around as long as you and I have. So that's kind of cool to see. But it it also just shows that like that that's the frustrating part it's like anybody that you do bring to the races they just love it and want to come back it's just getting those people to come for the first time um or to come back again that maybe you know fell out of favor with the series the way that it was before but it's just you know if you can get those people in they 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 fall for it as as hard as we do so we got to work on that continue to work on that we're going to have a good off season with all of our efforts pointing towards a 2020 that was that, that's even better than 2019. I think the thing that we've been able to do with Moto America in these five years is that we've gotten a lot better at virtually everything every single year. And as long as we continue to do that, I don't think there's anything, you know, any place that we can end up other than um, with success. So, you know, the, the partners have done a great job. Um, everybody here has done a great job. I mean, people, you know, uh, we, as you know, we don't have some massively huge staff. We have a small group of dedicated people who who bust their ass to to make this as good as they can. Everybody does their job, and somehow by Sunday night, we've uh, we've we've pulled off sometimes what I feel like is the impossible, and we've had successful events, and everybody's been safe, and 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 we follow the rules, and we we do everything the way you're supposed to do it. So it's kind of cool, and. And hats off to all those people, all those volunteers that come out and help us. And they do it because they love it, because th- that's really what they're getting out of it. They get to hang out at the races and they get to do some work and and maybe see things from the inside. So all of that's very cool. And and I'm I'm starting to blabble a little bit here too much. But um, 
<laughs> thanks for another right. thanks for That's another right. good podcast and and you know thanks for a great season the best thing about the podcast um is that uh we, we're not stopping we'll we'll do this continually through through the off season every single week and we'll have some guests we'll get those riders uh back on here and and start bothering them again um and and get some really good shows so that the fans can stay involved and get excited about 2020 yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to it very much, Paul. It's been a, been a great season with you as, uh, again and uh, looking forward to the future. All right. So, and I, I, as thanks. of right now, I'm not going back to Australia, at least not as of right now, but we'll see how I feel next week. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy when you were saying all that stuff. I was like, okay, I just need to get some a, a good night's sleep and you'll be different the next day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all good. good. All right, buddy. You take care yeah. and uh, we'll right. talk again. Right. Thank you.